Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The COVID-19 pandemic has made global health a top-tier issue in Washington. So for today's episode, I wanted to explore what opportunities might exist for the incoming Biden administration and Congress to advance a global health agenda premised on strengthening international cooperation to take on common health challenges. So, for example, how might the Biden administration support a global response to the pandemic? And beyond COVID, what other opportunities for multilateral cooperation on global health might there be in the coming months? On the line to answer these questions and more is Lois Pace, President and CEO of the Global Health Council. We kick off discussing how the Trump administration's approach to global health issues was something of a departure from typical bipartisan support for health and development around the world. And then we move into an in-depth discussion of how a Biden administration and new Congress may advance a global health agenda. Today's episode is produced in partnership with the Better World Campaign as part of a series examining the opportunities for strengthening multilateral engagement by the new Biden-Harris administration and the incoming 117th Congress. To learn more and access additional episodes in this series, please visit getusback.org. And now here is my conversation with Lois Pace, President and CEO of the Global Health Council. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. A lot of people, when they look at or think about um, the Trump administration's approach to global health, I would say that's been largely independent, perhaps, really sort of um, somewhat removed uh, and certainly different from what we've seen previously with the U.S. Uh, So many people have commented on the fact that uh, they've grown to um, expect the U.S. would be at the table, if not at the head of the table for a number of these discussions, particularly when it comes to something like the global response or international response to a pandemic. And yet, um, as we've seen with COVID, uh, that hasn't been the case, right? And and that absence is pretty striking and unsettling for people, uh, not just this year, but in in sort of forums leading up to 2020. Uh, In some ways, or in many ways, rather, um, COVID-19 has put a finer point on that. And uh, yeah, I think we'll probably see something pretty differently Mm -hmm. um, from the Biden administration come 2021. 
I mean, it seems to me sort of where I said, having reported on these issues for many years, um, that, you know, global health is one of those areas that historically or typically had broad bipartisan buy-in and consensus. I mean, I started reporting on these things in the George W. Bush era. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the PEPFAR, the, you know, the, the signature U.S. AIDS policy is, is, is called the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And then that right. P stood for President George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, some of the things that they emphasized were a little different between administrations, but there had been, a, at least until now, a degree of consistency. Well, and I think the good news, Mark, is there's still bipartisanship, to be clear, because in Congress, you've had them year after year, for example, protect the global health budget and the broader global development budget. Each time the Trump administration came with its proposal to cut those funds, Congress, on a bipartisan basis, right, uh, decided to go against what the president requested and retain uh, those resources. And so I think that's good. It's a good sign of the... um, I guess the fortitude of, of global health and development and the fact that even now in a highly political environment that we have in the U.S., um, global health seems to have weathered the storm somehow uh, on the Hill. We still get caught up in the wake of things. Um, a, a great example of that is uh, the back and forth around emergency funding for COVID-19. And we're finding that Ordinarily, when we'd be able to have funding, international funding specifically for the global response to be part of that, that's been harder to do just because it's just been harder for them to come to a decision overall um, mm. about that funding. And so then we get caught up in, in, in that back and forth. But um, with regards to regular appropriations and even some legislation, um, even when it comes to WHO, honestly, uh, we've still been able to hold the line uh, to a great degree on the Hill. And I think that that really matters because uh, we want any incoming administration to be able to lean on Congress for that support. And I think the good news is we don't need to worry as much about rebuilding that from the ground up for a Biden-Harris team. Mm. So uh, before we get on to opportunities for Mm -hmm. the incoming administration, uh, what uh, what are you looking towards in Congress since you just mentioned uh, Congress, which, mm-hmm. you know, we're speaking at this moment in which, you know, Democrats have retained control of the house. We don't know what's going to happen in the Senate just yet. Right. Um, but as you said, these are you know generally bipartisan issues uh, historically, at least um, what are you looking towards in the Congress to signal to you um, what might come next or what opportunities might exist for the United States to reassert its leadership on global health issues? I think first and foremost, we will want to still see some level of global funding in any relief bill. Um, Again, we don't know where that's going to land given our ongoing politics here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that would send a really strong signal if um, this Congress or the next, for that matter, uh, would be able to able and willing to um, pass uh, a bill that would address pretty urgent needs at home and abroad. So I think that's number one. So can I uh, can I just stop you there? Do you have a sure. ball, do you have like a ballpark estimate or suggested amount uh, if for international global uh, COVID relief to be included? I sure do. Oh, okay. As any good advocate would, mm-hmm. I, we have been pushing lately for. 
$20 billion. And that sounds like a lot until you look at the entire package of where that fits, uh, you know, commiserate with how global health and development sit in the overall U.S. budget. It's really uh, what we might see as a drop in the bucket when it comes to um, the need, especially when we think about how much the response or the pandemic itself has wrought um, this past year. But our, our argument is, well, first off, um, that's inclusive of health and development, to be clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a good chunk of that that would go towards uh, multilateral organizations like Global Fund and Gavi, who are supporting the COVAX and ACT Accelerator. So for people in your audience who might not know what those things are, essentially they're international collaboratives um, that have been stood up uh, by collaborating agencies, including WHO uh, and those that I've just mentioned, to uh, come together around the global response and specifically around technologies like uh, tests and diagnostics, as well as vaccines um, and other innovations uh, that would be helpful, particularly to low and middle income countries um, in their response to COVID-19. So yeah, that's the, been a really important effort, obviously. The ACT, uh, I believe, stands for the Access to Tools Accelerator. And the tools okay. in question are those things that would help countries uh, deal with COVID, whether it's mm-hmm. treatments or yep. in the case of COVAX, the vaccine or mm-hmm. therapeutics, things like that. And, and it's sort right. of this international WHO-backed collaborative. So you're saying some of that chunk of that $20 billion, uh, ought to go yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And then we think it's critically important not to forget the range of global health issues that uh, have been left behind, essentially, uh, due to the pandemic. You have people who aren't getting their TB meds or antiretroviral therapies because um, you don't have access to those health facilities or health workers in the same way. Um, similarly, we're falling behind on some maternal and child health metrics um, because of the limitations of those programs now, uh, given uh, stay-at-home orders or uh, supply chain uh, delays or, or other issues. And, and all of that requires funding. I mean, you have reports coming out and that, that came out earlier this year, for example, around now the cost of immunization. You have uh, health workers um, and, and frontline professionals trying to keep up with this need while also addressing COVID in these countries. But of course, they need PPE and other, other uh, special needs that weren't required this time last year. Um, to deliver vaccines to kids, for example. So if we're going to uh, continue with this work, it is going to cost a bit more money. Um, and and if only to sort of repurpose uh, or restructure some of those programs as they've been designed to date. And so um, there there is some funding in our request that really accounts for the full spectrum of global health needs, not only uh, a global health emergency like a pandemic. Uh, so beyond Congress, um, mm-hmm. You've mentioned um, you know, certain issues around how the incoming administration may engage on COVID issues internationally. I mean, how might the sort of fact of this pandemic um, help catalyze a return to U.S. global health leadership after, you know, you have this, this incredible move by the Trump administration to withdraw from the World Health Organization in the midst mm-hmm. of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Is there sort of an equal and op? opposite opportunity for the incoming Biden administration to, um, to sort of, uh, to, to, to engage in mm-hmm. like a way that it might not have engaged if not for the fact that there is this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And actually I would call it a, an enhanced and opposite opportunity, right? There because you go. Enhanced I think I, and opposite opportunity. There you <laughs> I go. think ideally we're not just 
coming back, but we're coming back in a very different way. I think we've all learned a lot from this past year, um, both about our politics, about our, our personal lives um, and, and values, um, and a whole range of, of lessons. I, I, I At least that's my experience with mm-hmm. 2020. And so um, if I'm thinking politically um, and about our policymakers, I think you've even heard the president-elect um, sort of hint at this. Of course, he has uh, clearly committed to uh, rescinding the decision to to leave WHO. And so that is that would no longer uh, be on the table in a Biden administration. And I think that's a relief to many of us who pushed back against that order um, or decision when it was handed down earlier this year. Uh, but beyond that, I, I think your question is the right one. You know, you it's not just about um, sort of, you know, coming back uh, to the table, um, um, but really being mindful of what it looks like for us to re-enter those halls and those discussions. And I'd hope um, that the U.S. Uh, would take an opportunity to step back and ask, well, you know, what what went wrong um, uh, and, and, and led us to a situation where we could walk away so easily, I think is one question. Also, what happened while we were gone, right? <laughs> and um, and maybe how were we missed um, is a question, um, but also what might've changed and worked differently and perhaps even better um, in our absence? In other words, does it make us sort of rethink ways that mm-hmm. we can mm, improve on the way that we engage, the way we even believe we're leading. Can I ask um, you to answer that question? I mean, sure. do, do, like, yeah. to what extent has the global health landscape and institutions like the WHO mm-hmm. um, evolved or changed, uh, you know, with this kind of recent U.S. withdrawal from from the table? Yeah, well, I think you had countries um, really looking up and saying, "Oh, wait, one of our friends isn't here anymore," you know, and it happens to be one of our friends who um, often would you know, um, take the lead with, with a pledge or, um, you know, otherwise uh, convene uh, the group of us around this particular issue. Um, certainly it wasn't always the U.S., but I think it, it's fair to say that the U.S., first of all, uh, has been and still remains to some degree a lead donor, right, um, but also would be the one to, to call to order um, or, or, or call people to action, right, around, around a particular issue. And what happened is other countries had to do that without us. Uh, and I think that was important for us all to experience uh, to a great degree. What, what's an Go example of, of that inaction of that happening over the well, last I few mean, years? Well, I mean, look at WHO reform um, and discussions around that. Um, this, this year, people were really questioning um, what WHO's role should be. And I think our stance, as you saw with the Trump administration, was we're just, we, we are just not going to have any confidence in them. And in fact, we are going to disengage entirely. Um, whereby other uh, countries of the G7, for example, said, well, wait a minute, there are changes that should be made or there are things that we should consider. Um, but we want to sit at the table with WHO um, or at least with each other to determine what those changes or, or, or revisions could or should be. Um, it was really striking, for example, at the World Health Assembly earlier this year, um, the, the sort of first iteration of that uh, back in May, um, whereby you had all of these countries 
uh, and even heads of state, right? Not only the health ministers, but you had these very strong commitments and statements that were made in support of WHO, recognizing the the nature of this moment, this this year. Even this was even just when we were partway through COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. right? Um, but everyone was really showing up and saying, "Look, we know that it's critically important that we stand with each other, that we stand with WHO, and that we all fight this thing together." And the U.S. was the only country that stood out and said. You know, we're not happy. We blame this country. We blame this institution. And I get it. You know, every every nation has its prerogative to get up and say whatever they choose. But it was quite striking that the U.S. chose in that moment not to stand shoulder to shoulder shoulder with the rest of the world in its response. And I think a lot. It was weird. I I saw that. You know, you had you Mm -hmm. had President Xi give this like magnanimous Mm -hmm. speech. Mm -hmm. You know, pledging vaccine support to Africa Mm -hmm. and and all this. Mm -hmm. And then you had. Alex Azar, the, the U.S. Mm-hmm. Health and Human Service uh, Secretary, just give this like petty and spiteful Rebuke. speech. And it was like, oh man. It wasn't very you, diplomatic. You, it's like, honestly, you're like watching a geopolitical shift in action. It was, uh, right, it was right really there. strange. Yeah, um, it was really quite strange. Um, so that actually leads me to, to uh, a set of questions I have for you on you know, opportunities for vaccine diplomacy on the Mm -hmm. part of the Biden administration Mm -hmm. and what like elements of a COVID vaccine diplomacy might be sort of meaningful and also demonstrate, you know, that the U.S. is willing to once again work cooperatively, you know, in the race Mm -hmm. to manufacture and access vaccine, you saw this like vaccine nationalism on one side and then, you know, vaccine multilateralism as embodied by institutions like COVAX. Mm -hmm. What might a effective Biden administration vaccine diplomacy look like to you? I think it would mean a lot to join COVAX, right? I think even just taking the step to to call them up and say, okay, hey, we, we want to be a part of this community would be critically important. Um, already, we make commitments to institutions like Gavi and Global Global Fund. And again, um, a, a, an ask that we have is that we, um, we look towards enhancing or increasing those commitments so that we could, um, so that that funding could be used towards um, something uh, like a COVAX. And so um, I think that that, that alone would be powerful, um, and both, you know, showing up with, with dollars, um, but also with a commitment or real leadership. And then even just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, discount the power of an expressed commitment to uh, fair and equitable vaccine delivery worldwide. Um, of course, uh, the, the president-elect will be concerned about uh, how he is ensuring that he keeps a commitment to the American people uh, to address their very real needs, uh, particularly among our at-risk populations. And yet you have things like um, this executive order um, from this week from the Trump administration really doubling down on its America first policy. Um, We had a similar stance around um, supplies uh, like masks and ventilators and the like uh, earlier this year. And, um, and while that's understandable that that level of fear and sense of scarcity and crisis, um, we know that we, none of us is really going to survive this or make it to the other side of COVID-19 unless we're all protected, right? Uh, and um, if nothing else, uh, to just see it as a as a factor of our own self-interest, mm-hmm. um, it would make sense to, to 
step into that space um, internationally um, and, and again, work in cooperation with other countries um, to, to deliver vaccines, you know, to the people who need them. And guess what? This, this can help the U.S. too, right? Uh, there, there, there is a reason why high-income countries have signed up to be part of this collaborative. And it's not only to do good in the world um, and to help other people elsewhere, but also because they see uh, a mutual benefit. Um, because we aren't sure sort of from, from whence the innovation will come. And, um, and it's not just about vaccines, but also other really important innovations uh, that, that come out of, you know, these shared uh, resources. And so I think that that will send a very strong signal if, if the Biden administration is, you know, willing and able to, mm. to work in that way. Um, beyond COVID, what other opportunities do you see in the coming months for renewed U.S. engagement specifically in multilateral platforms on Mm -hmm. global health issues. Are there any specific health issues you see ripe for the taking in terms of the U.S. kind of grabbing the baton or any other opportunities for the U.S. to engage multilaterally on health issues? Goodness, there's there's probably, probably too much. But look, we still very much need to finish the fight in a number of areas, we still, you know, we, we were very close to um, to the finish line in polio. Um, we still have a very real fight with HIV, right? Um, let alone the other big three, if we think about the TB and malaria triad with HIV. And so really doubling down on those commitments, I think, presents a, an important opportunity for the U.S. Because, as you mentioned before, going back to PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, and and given um, the establishment of a, of the Global Fund around that same time, both largely spurred or, or led by by the U.S. government, then you know we can really see through on these commitments and investments that we've made. I mean, we've, we've poured a lot into these programs, and we've and and we've seen the results. Uh, of of them and the fruits of our labor, if you will, and so it it seems as though we would we would we would want to be a part of seeing that through, uh, and so I see that as very ripe um, for us to kind of return to the stage and and express to the world that we're still very much committed to immunizations and infectious disease and you know these the kind of the fundamentals of global health as we've come to know them over the past couple of decades. I think another area, though. Uh, that's going to be important for us is, especially given our historic investments, it's going to be around primary health care. And you don't hear the U.S. talk a lot about uh, something like UHC or universal health coverage, obviously. Uh, but I think there's going to at least be a higher level of understanding and recognition that health systems are critically important and sort of the fundamentals of public health. Um, are, 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 are going to need to be in place in a very different way so that there is some resilience to whatever the next shock might be. Because I think now we have to admit that there, there could be another COVID, right? There, we don't know what's around the corner. And many of us in the advocacy space have been saying this for a while. Look, we've been lucky that things haven't gotten to this point before now when we were hopeful never to have something like what's happened in 2020. But there have been other countries and regions of the world who who have battled this, right? Who have battled Ebola, who have dealt with um, H1N1 and SARS and the like, and um, not to mention Zika. And so this has been brewing for a while. And I think we've been trying to make the case that while specific investments have been incredibly powerful and important, we have to break through the silos and understand the importance of systemic investment as well. 
and so I think there's a really big opportunity for the U.S. to align with countries like Germany, who are really strong in this area, um, and really show up and say, "Okay, we get it. You know, uh, we might not be able to fund every health system around the world, right? But we are going to approach this in a way um, that allows us to." Um, kind of lifts all boats, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, and, and really and really um, kind of build this base <laughs> mm-hmm. um, for on which these other priorities can stand. That I mean, includes... That, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, as you say, that, that would be an interesting shift to see. I mean, you know, the UN for the last you know, few years, as, as you all know, has been championing UHC universal health coverage. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would be just interesting to see if the United States would get on board as, as a more yeah. key partner in mm-hmm. some of these efforts. Yeah, I would move a little bit, you know, and it could mm-hmm. be as, as simple as, and this is hardly simple, right? But even as an initial step, what does it look like for us to reconsider assessed versus voluntary contributions, right? Like, and mm-hmm. especially when it comes to WHO, coming back to your question of how we shift multilaterally, that might need to sort of somehow be in sync with uh, whatever the member states decide around reform as an example. But, you know, I think this is something WHO has been seeking for a while, has recognized um, they need and that could make them even stronger as an institution. Uh, and again, I think, you know, we, we want these leaders, these professionals to be able to um, shift or pivot as needed uh, and, and truly address the sort of root needs. And the only way they can do that, I think, is by us... I don't know, sort of unlocking things a bit um, so that there's a, a, a bit more flexibility. So that, you know, I think that could be an interesting first step you know, for an administration in the first, you know, year or so for sure. There are a number of organizations and civil society groups in the United mm-hmm. States and around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what opportunities exist now for the new administration to, you know, deal more proactively with them? Yeah, I like that question a lot because I think in all of this COVID response chatter, which is again critically important, um, we forget about civil society, and we, and I think even in response to the crisis, a lot of the the power players have, um, you know, kind of left us behind and, and kind of forgotten about folks in the front lines, people living and working in communities who have really been critical critical uh, to the response, and so I think there's a real opportunity as well to. Um, revisit some sort of renewed engagement with civil society actors. Um, I'd really love to see that as, as part of any um, multilateral discussion, certainly. Um, but even outside of that, you know, how the U.S. operates in the world, how we sort of flip the script to be more, even more locally led now, right? Given how we've seen um, countries and regions do in the COVID response, how they've demonstrated what it looks like uh, to be work in a decentralized model even, right? These are things, these are assumptions I think people have made um, to say, well, you know, there has to be a lot of kind of control for the mothership, you know, with U.S. agencies and actors. And yet we haven't had the luxury of operating that way this year. And so I think it challenges us to rethink just the model of international development and health broadly, but in particular how the U.S. has approached it. Again, there's been a lot of good done, uh, but I think that we could do even better if we rethink our models and our ways of doing business. So I'm excited about that too. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Lois. This was great. Of course. Happy to be here, Mark. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Lois. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is part of a series of episodes looking at opportunities for multilateral engagement in the coming months as the new administration and new Congress takes office. And please do visit getusback.org to learn more. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.